Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris. What's up? It's Mike. Enjoying the podcast? Want more? Head on over to patreon.com slash comesatimepod for a bonus episode each week. Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. That's O'Teal. And that's Mike. We had a really good one this time. I actually thought it was a long shot uh, getting him, but I just was like, hey, what the hell? His name is Jeffrey Mishlove. I guess he would be Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. He's the first, probably the first person to ever get a doctorate, a PhD in parapsychology from UC Berkeley. And he... uh He's been around longer than he looks. <laughs> mm. A lot of these, he, he comes with a lot of empirical evidence for all kinds of paranormal and psychic phenomena. And what a great, what a great conversation. Yeah, this was interesting. He does look younger and... Uh, he don't look it, 75, does he? <clears throat> well, doesn't that kind of play into the thing that we like talked about a bunch too? Like you look at some of the folks that have been doing psychedelics a good chunk of their life and they age so uh much more gracefully i guess like you know you hit some bumps in the road but you make it a little longer and further so i think it's like when you're not too tied into this world you tend to stay a little longer on it you know maybe that's the case i I think you get energy like it's a gas tank too you Mm. get energy from that world yeah and it totally keeps you I mean, look at Stevie Wonder. There's a lot of spiritual energy flowing through that cat. Does he look his age? No. 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 There's a lot of people that just, he's a a special human. I don't even know where to start. You just got to watch this one. (laughs) Yeah, enjoy it, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and uh, we will catch you next time. Peace. Stay safe. Back, I started out in radio, KPFA, Pacifica Radio in, in Berkeley, back in the days when John Cage was around. And yeah. uh, I, at w- one occasion, I just invited a, about a dozen of my friends into the studio just to see what would happen. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it was total chaos. They were all talking over each other the entire time. <laughs> Another another incredible Bay Area experiment, huh? Yeah. <laughs> that awesome. it would have been fifty years ago. Wow, wow. you look really good for your age because I've been 
listening to a lot of your podcasts, and I heard you say that you were going to retire soon, and you're thinking about handing it over, you know. Uh, maybe retire isn't the right word. Yeah. Slow down a bit, and I have. I'm bringing in two new guest hosts. Excellent. Yeah. And you said you were like 75. I was like, wow, I did yeah. not think that. Wow. Well, <laughs> 75. Well, you, really you have glad a, to have you here. You know, it's one of the fears as a bald man. What I have is that like uh, <clears throat> you look at some of like the family members and how their skin has uh, aged, you know, some folks with the bald head, we kind of have those like it almost looks like uh, a burnt slice of pizza, <laughs> little cheese bubbles and stuff, you know, little burnt crust spots. But uh, yeah. you look phenomenal. Yeah, that's uh, you, you look great. I hope my head. And, and I feel great. As- I, people are living longer. What's your secret? I uh, can't say for sure. I uh, take good care of myself. I meditate. I do yoga. I I think I'm probably good for another 20 years of uh, active life. Beautiful. Awesome. Before I retire and and (laughs) (laughs) maybe hopefully more years uh, relaxing and enjoying the fruits of uh, all I've done. You've done a lot, man. There's so many uh, interviews on your YouTube channel. It's yeah. unbelievable. It just goes on and on and on. One of, uh, one of the guests that you had is, I couldn't believe we actually scored him for the podcast with Stanley Krippner. Because mm-hmm. we love to talk about anomalous experiences. And one actually happened to me today connected to you because I just started recording um, some segments uh, for this thing called Dream Time. And when I pulled up your name on YouTube today, the latest thing you guys released is called Dream Time with somebody Lackman. I was like, wow. And today, which I also forgot until social media reminded me, is the third anniversary of when my brother passed away. So it's wow. like all the stuff coming together today. I was like, all right, I see. <laughs> I you hear know, you. <clears throat> I had an interesting one this morning too, where I, I call into a group meditation call in the morning, uh, the type you know of meditation that I do. And um, I've been doing a lot of research about amino acids and the chemicals in the brain that help, you know, uh, either, you know, serotonin or dopamine or all these different... And they kick off each um, meditation with a topic. Mm-hmm. And some days it's, you know, um, nature or crying or whatever. And they said, today we're going to talk about um, amino acids and all of the different, you know, uh, chemicals that make up a healthy brain. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, it was literally, I was like, I put my phone down from researching it and went out <laughs> to a meditation <laughs> and that's how they started it. And I was like, right up your alley. Yeah. I love the little ones like that. You know, you get some big ones and then you get little ones. Yeah, it was know. a little one, but it's, yeah, it reinforces they, it. They still mean a lot. My my uh, particular way that I experience, experienced psychic phenomena or whatever was actually the subject of your podcast uh, today, um, Dream Time. I dream into the future, precognitive dreams. Very banal moments, nothing like Stanley Krippner was the first one I heard uh, talk 
about also ones that because I I don't feel like I could change mine, but I guess if something bad did happen, that I could change it. And he was talking about the Hello Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Uh, but you came to it the same way, right, uh, yeah, Jeffrey? Dreams. Absolutely. My whole life has been changed by dreams. Can you tell us about that dream that like made you your life take a left? Well, there were several. Um, there was one in particular uh, that I wrote about in the uh, Bigelow essay that I recently completed. And this took place in March of 1972. Uh, it was in one in which my uncle, great uncle Harry, came to me in, in the dream. And it was so powerful. I felt it was a heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul connection. And when I woke up from the dream, I was crying tears of joy and singing. At the same time, a, a very sacred song from a Jewish religious tradition, the song that's only sung normally during the Jewish high holidays. And uh, then I wrote home, I said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. I learned that he died almost at the precise time I was having that dream. That'll do it. That, that propelled me to uh, change my, the direction of my career. I was at the time a graduate student at Berkeley in criminology. I was doing group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists at San Quentin Prison. And I decided that the time had come for me to switch from looking at the negative side of human deviance to looking at the positive side. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, uh, Pretty interesting dream, huh, Otiel? <laughs> I had a very similar one about my uncle. Is that right? <laughs> I, my, my, my uncle was uh, sick with cancer, and I visited him before I went on a three- or four-week tour doing stand-up. And uh, 
I told my family, I don't want to know if he dies. I don't want to know, like, let me, you know, find out when I get home. And, um, I was in a hotel in Virginia and I had a dream that my whole family was by a lake and my aunt, a different aunt said, um, go talk to your uncle. And I turned around and my uncle went like blew by me, like walked by me and I could hear him and see him and you know, his whole essence. And he kind of blew right by me towards the lake and I popped up in bed immediately. And I was like, he, he's gone. And I texted my sister and I said, did, did he die? And she said about 20 minutes ago. And I said, um, I just had this amazing dream that, you know, by a lake. And she said, by a lake, let me send you a picture from his, a view from his room at hospice. And it was a lake and the sun was coming up over it and it was exactly what I had seen. And it was, um, too, like she, it it happened too quick for anybody to even call and tell me, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was a life changer for sure because I knew that he, he came to say goodbye to me, you know, it's really, really amazing. So, wow. That's kind of incredible to hear you say that. (laughs) I think getting chills right now. (laughs) like this are very common. And the sad thing is that people are afraid to talk about them mostly. And that's one of the things I loved about the interview I was listening to this morning called Dream Time was that uh, you were both correctly pointing out how recent that is. (laughs) You know, it wasn't for since time immemorial, we considered dreams where they rightfully in their rightful place of importance. And it's only really re- more recently, I guess, since the Enlightenment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that we we think, oh, that's just, what did he say? It was called foam. Some German guy said it, dreams are just foam, like just extra oh, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, there's a tendency since uh, the last few hundred years to dismiss the inner world completely. So I really would love you to talk about being the first, and maybe are you still the only person to ever get a doctorate in parapsychology and how you pulled that off at such an incredible university? <laughs> well, the first thing I should do is qualify the statement. I believe I'm probably the only person in the world ever to receive a doctoral diploma that says on the parchment of the diploma itself, parapsychology as my field of study. Uh, (laughs) But there are hundreds of people actually who have done doctoral dissertations on parapsychological topics. I did it in a unique way because I wasn't working in a standard university department. I, as I mentioned, I had uh, I was in criminology at Berkeley. I got a master's degree in criminology, but I took advantage of a very unique program they had and still have at Berkeley called the Individual Interdisciplinary Doctoral Major, where if you want to put together a a dissertation on a topic and no department at the university is willing to sponsor you, but you can find professors from diverse departments who will sponsor you, 
then you can uh, create your own unique degree. So that's what I did. And it gave me enormous freedom that most graduate students don't have to define my own field of study. That's higher education right there. <laughs> that's the way it should be. I think so. Yeah. You must have been so relieved that you could find those three people to co-sign. Eventually, there were five. And uh, the odd thing is, right after I received my degree, there was enormous pressure on the university to revoke it. Even <laughs> before the degree had been offered, the, the skeptics really? wanted the university to cancel everything. And uh, they put a lot of pressure on the university. And then after I got the degree, the university canceled the individual <laughs> interdisciplinary doctoral major option at Berkeley. Now, I know they've reinstated it after I don't know how many decades, but it's a shame because interdisciplinary research is, to my way of thinking, very important. Absolutely. I've been yeah. watching these uh, CIA guys that are coming out uh, about the UFO thing, and they say what they call OSINT, which is... Uh, it's um, open source intelligence. So it's just everybody, people, the internet, people at a UFO conference talking. They say how much they learned from going to like MUFON conferences and contacted the desert and all these. I'm like, wow, these guys are going to the same conferences, you know, of people that I check out. And uh, but open source intelligence is that bringing, you know, if the whole village, someone over here goes, yeah. That's also why I want to talk about it, because it's like what Stanley Krippner said about um, he wanted to spread the word about this so that people wouldn't pathologize their own experiences and think they're crazy or they're weird or they're schizophrenic or whatever. It's like, no, lots of people have these experiences. And probably you know, two-thirds to 75% of the population the, the problem is that the so-called guardians of reality, the scientific and academic establishments are, are, are the ones that keep it out. So that's why there's so few people, nobody after me. I got my degree at Berkeley 40 years ago, 42 years ago, and it hasn't been done subsequently. Yeah. You know, that says parapsychology and very few dissertations, even on parapsychological topics. It's still considered taboo in academia. And it's a terrible shame. It, it results yeah. in people worrying, oh, I might be losing my mind or I, I know I'm perfectly sane, but I can't talk about it because other people will think I'm nuts. Well, when and I he, dream into the future and it happens, I'm like, it happened. Like, yeah. You may have deja vu. I remember my dreams. It happened. Well, so I get my proof, you know. And even from an academic standpoint, it kind of stinks how many square pegs have to jam themselves into the round holes that are offered to them. You know, um, that, that part is really frustrating because it's like, say you're interested in a certain part of, you know, psychology or whatever it may be, but you want to branch further to extend the you know, the lineage of the, of the science or of the, you know, knowledge, instead of just read a book, take a test. Great. Now you are going to go regurgitate what's already been said for the past few hundred years or whatever. So hats off to you for, for, you know, doing the yeah, work well, to bring it a step too. forward. 
You know, our culture has changed enormously in the last 20, 30 years or so with the internet, with podcasts. Uh, you're a stand-up comedian. Do you bring this up in, on, on your comedy routines? Yeah, I try to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I yeah. Um, it, it's it's you, you know. Uh, yeah, we'll just put it. I, I try. <laughs> I try. I have my I have my fallback. Uh, you know, twenty three and me jokes and my uh, you know whatevers. But yeah, the the longer the goal of it is to be just speak from the heart. Mm -hmm. I guess is really the important thing. You know, yeah. anybody any anybody could tell a joke about you know traffic or whatever but i'd like to talk more about you know the dreams and the experiences and stuff for sure <laughs> same with oteal with music i mean it's it's yeah but we are allowed to do it more but i don't know i just think it's such a shame that the scientists are so dogmatic and one of the great ironies i saw on your interview with is it stefan or stefan schwartz yes stefan schwartz stefan stefan schwartz I think it was him and he was pointing out at some point when I don't know where the, uh, the church was obviously still more in control and they just told the scientists like you deal with this and we'll deal with the spiritual and let's just stay and the scientists actually bought into that dogma which still holds today that they're separate and it keeps us from like integrating or synthesizing and it's so sad it it's like science shouldn't be dogmatic, but scientists, some are, and academia is, or else there would have been at least one other parapsychology doctorate, right? In 40 years? Come on. You can't be the only one that wants to get one, and, right? Well, well, there, as I said, there are a few others at West Georgia College in the United States. There are a few people who have done doctoral work in parapsychology. There's a school called Saybrook that Stanley Kripper mm -hmm. used to teach at. Uh, there's the California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, the California Institute of Human Sciences. So there, there are a few places where at least you can um, have some, a few coursework at, at least, or you know, there, there are professors who will sponsor students to do parapsychology projects. So it's, it's starting to open up very, very slowly. The problem is, you see, on, on the scientific side, they're afraid of what they call the rising tide of superstition, which is real. I mean, we see yeah, it in our culture. Sure. And on the religious side, they're afraid uh, that this stuff is real, but it's, it's diabolic. Yeah. So they you warn you to the... stay away from it for, <laughs> for that reason. So there's a lot of social pressure to uh, uh, prevent you know, big foundations and certainly the government from putting any money into this area. But then they go do it on the sly, because this is another thing I want to ask you about. I have so many questions for you. But, you know, the Grateful Dead started in basically Palo Alto, California. All roads, and there's a song called Terrapin, All Roads Lead Back to Terrapin. And I think Terrapin might be Palo Alto because everything seems to come back to there in Stanford Research Institute. And, you know, you hear all these things about the government and the military and intelligence agencies saying that they don't study UFOs and all. The whole time they've been doing it, 
They've been doing. You were involved in some of that, right? You knew Ingalls One, or well, I, those... I, I was very close with Russell Targ, who worked Russell with Russell Targ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, incidentally, I used to live in San Rafael, California, half a block from Jerry Garcia's house. <laughs> yeah. Did you get to know him well? No. No, no. I, I didn't. I didn't know him personally. What I, who I did meet was after Jerry died, uh, an anthropologist bought the house and he was having poltergeist experiences inside the house. So he called me up to see if, <laughs> if I could uh, help him out with that. And, uh, wow. That's pretty wild. So, I, so you I, got to meet Jerry I, posthumously. I got, I got a tour of the house. Well, I know Jerry was way into this stuff because he. I listened to a lot of interviews with him before I joined the band, and um, he mentioned a couple of UFO names. You know, when you throw out J. Allen Hynek, I was like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, he, he knows what's up. So I thought that was fascinating. Well, I also knew that he really didn't sleep a lot, and I guess he would sit up at night and read and nod off, wake up, read, nod off, and then talk about what he read the day after, you know, like that was his, like, you know, he always loved to like rap and talk about the thing. So he was probably constantly taking stuff in, in the lucid, you know, state. And that's where I think it lingers. That's where the stuff that's important kind of is tacky and sticks, you know? <laughs> that's so I, I have a random question for you on all of your, in, or most of your interviews, there's this really interesting statue in between you and the other, what is that? I finally saw it close up and I was like, okay, it's not what I thought it was. <laughs> I, I have had viewers say it looks like some kind of a grotesque fetus or, or something, but <laughs> it, it's a, a beautiful uh, piece of artwork. It comes from the Shona people of Zimbabwe in Africa. It's sculpted in soapstone and the name of the sculpture is Family. And it actually, if you look at it closely, it depicts a father and a mother and three children. Ah, family. I love it. I love it. All right. So I have to ask you about uh, Robert Bigelow. Mm. For the um, fans of Comes a Time that don't know, all the stuff you've seen about Tic Tac, UFO, and all that stuff, uh, the... USS Nimitz, I think it was called. And um, these things were studied by this program, either called ATIP or OSAP. I've heard so many different names. It's, but um, Bigelow got the contract for that. Um, I think it, what was his, he's a billionaire guy. He's like a Tony Stark, basically, <laughs> you know, and he's building some pods. I don't know who Tony Stark is. He's uh, in a Marvel comics. Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> I, like Batman, you know, he has yeah. the, the Bruce hanger. Wayne. And Bruce the- Wayne, <laughs> exactly. For the for us older guys, he's Bruce Wayne. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think his son died, right? And that was part of his interest. And then he also has the UFO interests. And he had a contest and you you won it. Can you talk about that? 
yeah, first of all, um, hats off to Robert Bigelow. Uh, when I gave the acceptance speech, I won half a million dollars in, in this wow. contest. So uh, they had a uh, award ceremony that took place in Las Vegas at his company, Bigelow Aerospace. Uh, he they design inflatable modules for space stations. And it was his plan to launch his own space station. Uh, and the, however, what happened was the pandemic came along and the governor of Nevada deemed his company a non-essential business. And so he had to let the employees go and they scattered. And now it's questionable, can he ever bring them back again to oh, wow. continue the project? But uh, in any case, that's where they held the award ceremony in this room filled with uh, these big inflatable space station modules. And, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I, I had the opportunity to give a, an acceptance speech in front of the group. And, and what I argued at the end of my speech is that other billionaires, the uh, Richard Bransons and Elon Musk's and of, of the world, uh, Bill Gates and, and so on, especially the ones who are very interested in outer space, if they could just devote a small portion of their vast wealth, like Robert Bigelow has done, and follow his example and put some money into the exploration of the far reaches of human consciousness, not only would it be of great value for all of humanity, but in my view, if the human race is ever going to become a member of the community of interstellar space traveling species, we have to understand hyperspace. And hyperspace entails dimensions of consciousness as well. And in fact, I think if you want to understand the afterlife, you have to begin to look at hyperspace mathematics. If the afterlife is a real place, and there's plenty of empirical evidence to suggest that, yes, indeed, it is a, a place, then it has to be somewhere. And it, since it's not in three-dimensional space, another obvious place to look is hyperspace. Either that or you've got to go down into two dimensions or one dimension or zero dimensions of, of space altogether, which is another way to think of it. But probably all those things are true. So when you say hyperspace and when you, um, let's say astral astral travel or um floating in a you know transcendence is that where humans can access that space uh is that what you mean because well, i mean fully agree with the you. future the tibetans call it the bardo planes and you had like let's take the dream you had and i had of our uncles yeah. it seems that dreams also occur in some kind of a space the dream space is a space that involves your personal unconscious, but it also seems to border what the Tibetans would call the bardo plane. So hyperspace can be incredibly complex. Uh, it may include dream space, uh, lucid dreaming, out-of-body experiences, so the so-called astral plane and other 
planes that are described in the esoteric literature, the mental plane and uh, the Buddha plane, the causal plane, and, and so on. Uh, there are mathematicians who have worked out very precisely uh, the geometry of higher dimensions of space. And I, I'll give you an example of uh, what really intrigues me here. Uh, in lucid dreamers, often report that uh, if you've ever had a dream in which you're being chased, you're running, you're running, trying to escape something, but it feels like you can't move, you're stuck in quicksand or something. At that moment, if you become just a little bit lucid, a shift in consciousness, so, so you can remember where you are, that's the point where you can start to fly. Mm. I recently I, did that. You yeah. did it. I've done it. Other people have reported yeah. it. It's in the literature. So that's what you I would call a, a moment of transformation. And I think mm -hmm. uh, there is mathematical work that, that specifies in geometric terms, the kind of transformations that occur when you go from different dimensions of hyperspace from one to another. There's very extensive mathematics. And I wonder if it's possible to map out the kind of experiences people have in these altered states of consciousness to see whether the transformations that people such as you and I have both experienced uh, if they would be what we would say isomorphic to the mathematical models that already exist, if that's the case, we would have the foundations for an authentic scientific exploration of uh, the afterlife as well as other adjacent states of consciousness. Wow. And I'm pretty sure that uh, if you were to have a lengthy conversation or explore the lengthy conversations that are reported by some people who say they know and talk to aliens, you would find that uh, there's a relationship between interstellar space travel and these dimensions of consciousness. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWolf. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. What's up, everyone? I'm Mike. And I'm O'Teal. And these are our Sunset Lake CBD gummies that are almost gone. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned business that ships CBD products directly from their farm to your door. For years, Sunset Lake was a Vermont dairy farm producing milk for Ben & Jerry's ice cream. In 2018, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And with a product for everyone, they offer pre-rolls, hemp cigars, and hemp flowers, as well as tinctures, gummies, and CBD-crafted coffee to help with stress, aches, and pains. 
Sunset Lake CBD saves you money by shipping high-quality CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Want to know what I've been using a lot of, Oteal? This salve with the arnica uh, yeah. on, my, on my old bones. You get back from a show and you got tore ankle, rub a little bit of this on there. You're ready to dance the next day. And you know, S- Sunset Lake, uh, comes a time listeners can visit sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code TIME for 20% off of their purchase. That's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code TIME. And tell them we sent you. Hypothetically speaking, let's say we had those dreams, but we had an MRI machine on during it. Is that how that mathematic equation is, is um, you know, uh, quantified or, or done? Or I guess my question is sort of, how is the math accomplished? Yeah, the, the mathematics is sort of done purely on the basis of mathematical logic. There's no empirical testing or very little empirical testing to date. Now, in, in physics, what you often find is the mathematicians come up with various theorems, and then the physicists later on discover, well, this matches what we're already doing in our experiments. Uh, string theory is uh, a branch of physics, very controversial but it is a branch of physics that relies on the mathematics of hyperspace right now. Uh, I'm not aware of its application yet in MRI studies of the brain, but in in theory, perhaps that could be done. Let's talk about some of the empirical evidence, though, that has been amassed, because you have a lot of great guests that talk about that, because people... Like I said before, the, the government takes a stance, we don't study it, but the CIA paid for quite a lot, and so did the Navy and branches of military with SRI, like remote viewers, and they did the testing and, it, and proved it works. Can you talk about some of those things? Well, okay. And even ones that weren't necessarily CIA, just dream experiments or whatever. Well, let's look at the history. The uh, Society for Psychical Research was founded in England in 1882. And uh, it was at that time, there was a huge wave of popular interest in spiritualism, much as in, let's say, the 60s, 70s and 80s, there was this huge wave of interest in psychedelics and human potential. Well, in the the 19th century, it was spiritualism. They didn't have television, so people would have seances for their entertainment in the evening in (laughs) in their homes. And, uh, you know, they were reporting all kinds of phenomena. So some of the leading intellectuals of the day said, we ought to see if we can explore this scientifically. And this was at a time when before they had sophisticated statistics, before they had double-blind experiments. So they would use the methods of criminology or uh, the methods of the courtroom. They would try and document everything. They'd get affidavits from the witnesses and get uh, descriptive accounts and case studies of of what occurred. And uh, that's still going on. I think it's very valuable research. Then starting in the 1930s, 
J.B. Ryan at Duke University felt that we could put this field on a stronger scientific basis by conducting experiments with statistical outcomes. And they uh, were basically card guessing, yeah. dice throwing. And he established in the 30s uh, the existence of what he called extrasensory perception and psychokinesis or mind over matter, as well as precognition. So the, the emphasis shifted a bit at that time to let's look at the abilities of living people rather than searching for evidence of an afterlife. Hmm. And that work uh, continued. It was always controversial. Even today, it's rejected. Now, in um, 2018, finally, you know, after uh, over 100 years of research, the American Psychological Association published an article in their flagship journal, The American Psychologist, reviewing all the scientific data in mm. parapsychology. Really? Uh, yes, including uh, what they call meta-analyses. And uh, so maybe in total, some 1,400 experiments. And what they found is that in spite of the critics refusing to accept the data, the data was very strong and very good. In fact, uh, one uh, individual whom I've interviewed and who was one of the judges in the Bigelow competition, Jessica Utz, former president of the American Statistical Association, said, if this were any other field of study, the findings would have been accepted long ago. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. The, the evidence is that strong. Hmm. It's still statistical. In other words, you can't necessarily produce it on demand every time. Yes. But some people are extremely gifted. Now, my friend Russell Targ at SRI, where they got government funding to the tune of about a million dollars a year for 20 years in a row, was extremely successful. Uh, over 90% of the experiments he did uh, were direct hits. So, so there's a lot of good scientific data published in peer-reviewed journals uh, supporting this phenomena. And yet, because we live in such a materialistic age, there is a group of scholars, they think of themselves as rationalists. Uh, and from their point of view, it's like they've already know how the universe works. And they, their attitude is it doesn't matter what evidence you come up with, because from our point of view, it's impossible. So we don't even need to look at the evidence. Jeez. <laughs> well, that's where I'm like, I don't mind you being a rationalist. Just admit you're also a dogmatist. <laughs> Please just own it. You know, there's this thing that uh, Stefan Schwartz said that really caught my ear at one point. We're having him on tomorrow. I just couldn't believe. Oh, he's a good like, friend of mine. Yes. Oh, he's, it was the interview between you two that just, I was like, could you see if you could get both of them? <laughs> but he yeah. said, I'm a plunky. And I was like, what in the heck is a plunky? I'd stop whatever I was doing. And for fans that don't know, he was talking about Max Planck, who was the other guy who was like Einstein and Planck. And I guess Planck was the quantum 
Physicist. Founder of quantum physics. And he said, but this idea was the one. He said that Planck believed that consciousness, the non-local consciousness, as he called it, preceded space-time and that space-time was born out of this non-local consciousness. And scientific materialists believe that it's the opposite, like the stew happened, life sprang up, consciousness evolved as, and he was like, no, no, no. And I was like, you know, a scientist couldn't even admit that they believe that nowadays. Although I shouldn't say that because some do, uh, thankfully. And um, so that idea, I thought, well, and when you look in the Bible, the only time that God says what its name is, is I am that I am. And I was like, that's the non-logic consciousness, which Planck believes everything proceeds from. And I was like, these things are not in conflict. They're just not. It's this dogma from both sides that keeps the conflict going. Well, it, that's beautifully articulated, what you just said. That's the, the crux of the you know, metaphysical battle that's going on for the, the minds of humanity. And, of course, the uh, idea that consciousness is fundamental, it's, it's in the Bible. When you say God created the universe, that's essentially what you're saying. It's in... Uh, the ancient Vedic traditions, it's well understood by ancient communities everywhere. And yeah. if, if you understand that consciousness precedes space and time, then it makes perfect sense if you want to travel across space and time uh, to distant galaxies and, and the like, you have to understand consciousness. Yes, hmm. this is the Millennium Falcon. This is the time traveler. This is the dimension crosser. We do it involuntarily. We do it when we go to sleep. We could cross, we could be walking and be like, uh-oh, what was that? And it just, you know, I don't know if we could really help it. I think the people that it does happen to, I think it happens to everybody, but the, the one who bought into the strict materialist uh, dogma, then it's like it doesn't exist. It's just, oh, that's just random. You know, well, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's very strong in our culture. If if something is important to you, you say it matters. If something is matter is you that you grasp and you understand clearly, you say it makes sense. If you mm. think you want to dismiss an idea, you say it's nonsense. Immaterial. So, or immaterial. That, that's, it's so deeply embedded in our language to think that matter is primary and that the senses are more important than our inner intuitions about things. Uh, my friend Bernardo Castro, who's a philosopher, one of the great proponents of what's known as idealist philosophy, that the universe is really mental, points out that the opposite view, the materialist view, is incredibly seductive. Yeah. Hmm. Of course. It's, look, it worked for now. It, well, it's the, what we base practically all of our technology on. And so it yes. works for technology. And as a result, people uh, assume, well, it must work for everything then. But it's mm. just illogical. Like if you look at um, 
the left brain, the right brain, I'm generalizing. The right brain's a more uh, subjective side. The left brain's a more objective side. Mm-hmm. So the, the left brain, in its pure objectivity, I would think would look at the right brain and go, hey, you're actually equal to me. What are you for? <laughs> you know, like, how can you just discount? It seems incredibly illogical and unscientific to not be curious about it since you experience it. And I also have like this, I would love to bounce this off of you. I, I, the next time I run into a material, a strict materialist, I want to ask them, how can you prove that science even exists? Because science, the word means to know, right? So who is doing the knowing? If you can't prove consciousness exists, then how can you, then science doesn't exist. Even if you can reproduce it, you can't scientifically produce, you know, like prove. Well, then you put your finger on the biggest paradox in science and philosophy uh, at all is the, the existence of consciousness. People, as you say, they assume, you know, consciousness exists, but there's no way that you can take a materialistic scientific model and and build a conscious experience from that, let alone free will, let alone purpose and intention. Mm, Exactly. And yet we experience it. That's why I try to go when they say, well, that doesn't matter. It's immaterial. I'm like, is love immaterial to you? You tell me there's nobody you love, your mom, your wife, somebody, your children. Like, so is that love immaterial? Is it nonsense? No, it's not. Because if something happens, let me put a gun to their head. We'll find out how much it matters quick, right? I mean, I would never do that, obviously. But, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, if, if, if I were to try to defend hardcore materialism, I'd say love is just a question of uh, chemicals in the brain, you know, uh, something like that. They try to reduce it to chemicals, which doesn't really work. But, you know, people have these ideologies and they're very seductive. And reductive. <laughs> yeah. Because exactly. I'm like, yeah, I could, I, I actually would agree that it's partially chemical, but that doesn't mean it's not spiritual. It's like that whole idea. I think it was Stefan again that was talking about, or maybe it was Lynn, who one of your guests was talking about how our nervous system is basically a bunch of strands that conduct electricity, and so we are antennas, like our whole body is antennas. So we can perceive all these different things that are not, you know, uh, tangible, but are the, maybe they're measurable. I don't know uh, if, they're, if there's an electrical impulse. Well, I don't know, so, yeah, well, but that's what I'm saying. I'm okay with the chemical, our whole makeup, mm-hmm. but that doesn't like, they, why do they have to be mutually exclusive? Right. Yeah. Well, I think you've got a very good handle on things. <laughs> Except for <laughs> I'm the crazy one. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, I wanted to ask. I have so many questions uh, that I wanted to ask you about. Um, oh yes, there's this phrase that came up, and I even forget the co- context now. But you used it, polyphrenic psyche. Do you remember that? Um, 
maybe uh, polymorphic, let me see, polymorphic perversity, is that it? I thought I wrote it down right. Polyphrenic psyche. It was oh, something to do, a, I think, with schizophrenic. Ah, <laughs> interesting. Maybe that's what I am. <laughs> I'm not schizophrenic, I'm polyphrenic. There you go. <laughs> I think it was something to do with the PK man, which we should probably hmm. touch on anyway, because I knew, and I think I actually know another one right now, because I saw him do this thing where he made the rain stop. Uh, the bass player for Lettuce. <laughs> I have to tell you that story. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Colonel Bruce Hampton, one of my big mentors, was one of these people that was incredibly psychic. Mm -hmm. And weird things would happen, like my electronics in a Dreamtime segment I'm in a show when I was talking about him and my video editor was editing it. And I said something about Bruce and it just zoomed in on me. He was like, I didn't do that zoom. And it would show up here in this graph if I did. And Bruce just had all this kind of stuff attached to him like that. So when I heard about PK, man, I was like, that guy. Can you tell people about him? Yeah, I uh, was first introduced to the PK man uh, at SRI International back in 1976. I had gone there to um, experience remote viewing. Hal Putoff and Russell Targ were there. and. They were very excited. They had this big file. They said, this man has been badgering us all the time. He says he's the greatest psychic in the world. He's, he says, you're wasting your time studying Uri Geller. I'm the greatest psychic. <laughs> and and he, he said, I'm going to prove it to you because uh, they were ignoring him. There was a drought in California in 1976, serious drought. And he said, I'm going to end it. He said, and you'll know that I ended the drought because it's going to happen in just a few days. There's going to be rain and sleet and hail and snow and every kind of weather you wouldn't believe. And there's going to be power blackouts and UFO sightings, which is my his signature. And the, your local newspaper is going to run a story saying the drought is over. And at the time, the stories were there's no end in sight to the drought. So all of this happened, like within a few days. And uh, Russell Targ sent him a letter saying uh, that was a good prediction. And he wrote back and he said, hell no, that was no prediction. I caused it. And Wow. Yeah, these guys are getting funding at that time from the CIA. And Uri Geller, who they were working with, was already, as far as they were concerned, too public, too controversial. So they didn't want another person, a flamboyant psychic. So they asked me to take over this case. They said, it's really worth studying, but we can't do it. So would you mind looking into this? And please take the file out of our office. Wow. So, uh, that's, that's how it started. And uh, there was a publication in those days called Psychic Magazine. And somehow, I think, put off her tired leaked a story they knew the editor and so a little news story got published about some psychic uh, predicted he could end the drought and it ended wow. well 
then, if I remember correctly, it would have been the next year, 77, I think it was, maybe 76, there was a drought in England. And people in England had heard about this, and some guy ended the drought in California. So they contacted him and said, <laughs> can you end this drought we're having? And uh, he, so they, they flew him over to England to be part of a conference on parapsychology. And uh, it was 76, too, I think, in the summer. And I was there at the conference. So that's where I met him in person. Uh -huh. <laughs> and and uh, he was this big, flamboyant American fellow. He walked onto stage when, when he gave his presentation, carrying a little red toy wagon behind him, pulling it, stacked high with all of these papers. And he said, uh, these are all the documents of his many demonstrations of his psychokinetic powers. Jeez. And the British audience didn't go for that at, at all. <laughs> they, they didn't, you know, they don't like the brash Americans. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, yeah. they literally kicked him off the stage. <laughs> and and I, uh, it's it's a strange story. But I stood up and vouched for him. I said, I happened to have firsthand information about what he had done in California. And uh, he, you might not think that you should take a person like this seriously, uh, but he has a track record. And so we became friends. He, I befriended him. And that began like a 10-year study. I, I worked with this man and uh, studied his abilities until his death in 1987. And that that was the basis of my book, The PK Man. It's funny. They're kicking him off stage and he's like, you know what? Enjoy your drought for another six weeks, everybody. I'm <laughs> well, out of the here. The funny thing is the day he <laughs> arrived in London, the same thing happened. It really? rained and it, it was <laughs> wow, that's power blackouts. And the local paper wrote a story. The drought is over. Uh, when okay. I first arrived in London, people told me, if you want to get your picture on the front page of the London Times, all you have to do is go down to Piccadilly Square with an umbrella. People will think you're crazy. They'll put your picture in the paper and you'll be famous. That's funny. <laughs> Can you tell that story about when he, uh, I guess he was on a plane and he had made the paper or whatever, and he got drunk and caused a mishap. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, he he had. Um, it, there, there's a sequence, and it starts when he has a friend who's a radar operator in a radar station over the Chesapeake Bay, and um, in Washington, Virginia, that area, Maryland, and. He's going to show, demonstrate that he can cause uh, psychokinetic effects that are observable on the radar screen. So he does this. The radar operator reports, yeah, he, he's concentrated on the radar screen and all sorts of strange effects occurred. So Owens did that. And then he said, you better not let any airplanes fly over this area for a while because the psychokinetic effects last 
for a while and it could be dangerous <laughs> for airplanes. Well, I think there were two or three airplane crashes. Navy jets oh. crashed in the Chesapeake Bay as a result of that. Oh, and there was a journalist, a famous <clears throat> journalist named Otto Binder, who got word of it. Uh, since you like comic books, Otto Binder is very famous in the comic book world. He worked on many comics and he invented one called Shazam. That was yeah. his, his invention. So, wow. um, but he also was a science writer and he worked for NASA and he published a story. Uh, it was published in Saga magazine about all these uh, airplanes crashing in the Chesapeake Bay after Ted Owens did his psychokinetic experiment with the radar operator. And he, oh there's God. affidavits from the radar operator. It's all well documented. So, as the, at the time the Saga magazine article came out, Ted Owens had been invited by a rich benefactor to go to Egypt and see if he could do anything with the entities that they believed uh, were inside the Great Pyramid. And Owens was there. He felt he had communicated with various occult entities inside the Great Pyramid. And he's flying back to New York. Um, and uh, he's up in first class and he's drinking. He was a big drinker. And he's got this magazine article of the airplane crashes and he's showing off in front of all the stewardesses. Look at me. I'm the PK man. Airplanes crash. So the plane is coming in for a, a, because of lightning strikes, incidentally. The plane is coming in to land at Kennedy Airport when the airplane in front of his plane coming in for a landing was struck by lightning and crashed was at the time this would have been in the 1960s i think 67 or so really before i met him uh the biggest air crash in, in u.s history whoa whoa and uh -huh. it, why i think it's significant is because his method of creating these psychokinetic phenomena is that he creates a drawing. He looks at a picture of what he wants to have accomplished. Whoa. And so here he is drunk, focusing on a picture of an airplane crash being struck by lightning when it happens to the plane coming in right ahead of his own plane uh, into Kennedy Airport. That's a scary power for a heavy drinker. <laughs> well, he used to <laughs> really do it when he got drunk. People often, in fact, Ted Sirios is another one who does what were called thoughtographs. He would get drunk and create mental images on Polaroid film. There's a whole archive of his uh, wow. photographs right now uh, housed in the library at the University of Maryland. Okay. So uh, uh, we, you know, we know so little about this. I do know that Ted Owens liked to get drunk and watch football games, and he'd have multiple TV screens going at one time, and he would pick the the teams that were the underdogs to win uh, by causing way. the favored team to fumble the ball. <laughs> and wow, he had, uh, it was at one time 
a, a scientist named Max Fogel, who was the director of That's research awesome. for Mensa, because Ted Owens was a member of Mensa, did a study and determined for the season that Ted Owens was 75% accurate in causing the underdogs to win football. <laughs> now that's a good person to have around yeah. during the football I, season. This wow. is why I wanted to have you on because I've, I've watched so many interviews that you've done and so much of it is like empirical evidence based, Yeah, you know, like, Stefan doesn't, he's not a religious person. He's a Plunkian. <laughs> Everything is about data. Mm -hmm. You know, same with SRI and same with whatever, you know, it's like, it's data driven. Yeah. But there's a lot of empirical evidence and people don't know about it because of this dogma, this emperor, no clothes thing. You know, we're not allowed to talk about it. I was so impressed with Avi Loeb coming out and saying, hey, man, they talk about it in the ivory tower. They're just not talking about it in front of you. Well, Avi Loeb is interested in extraterrestrial uh, civilizations and the yeah. possibility that they could be had sent a probe into our solar system. Uh, yes. Some of the reasons, I think, ultimately, the reason why people uh, reject even the possibility that this could be real rejected so strongly, they say, we don't even need to look at the evidence because we know it's impossible, is because of, of deep psychological fears. And mm. uh, it became very clear to me when I was an under, no, a graduate student at Berkeley, the day that Arthur C. Clarke came to speak on the Berkeley campus. My brother's favorite author. He was, uh, this is in the 70s, and uh, Uri Geller was prominent, and Arthur Clarke had published an, uh, a little note in Time magazine saying he didn't believe in Uri Geller. So he gave his lecture, and if you read his novels, you know he writes about psychic phenomena, <laughs> Childhood's End is a wonderful uh, novel of that. So I raised my hand, I said, Mr. Clark." do you believe in ESP? And his answer was very revealing. He said, no, I do not, because I don't want anybody to read my mind. Mm. Wow. That's yeah. the basis of, I think, the resistance that people have to yeah. even acknowledging the possibility and yep. it goes back to Freudian <clears throat> psychology. Freud pointed out, we don't want to know what's in our own mind. And see, I do. I well, and then do. you look at Dick Schwartz <laughs> and internal family systems, which is totally opposite, yep. where there's, ten, there's yeah. a dozen of us in there. And you open the you know, door and look into that room that has been shuttered up for so long. And yeah, it's that fear. Love and I mean, fear, you know, those are the two ways you operate. Well, you know, everybody's... It's scary knowing that Santa knows who's naughty and who's nice, because then <laughs> he knows we're all naughty <laughs> and nice, you know? <laughs> well, wow. If, if I think we're in an era, uh, for better or worse, where people are beginning to say, yeah, we should learn what's inside of our mind. I mean, things like Jerry Springer on TV, 
you know, having the, the most negative aspects of human behavior out in front of the whole public, like let it all hang out. Yeah. And uh, it's sometimes very unpleasant to watch. Uh, and, and it probably has certain detrimental social consequences. People feel more comfortable being rude, uh, I think. But at the same time, we're beginning to come to a deeper understanding of, uh, you know, the fullness of, of our, well, at least the animal side of our nature. That's what we're afraid of. But until we can confront that, we're not going to get to the higher. And, I, and you know what's interesting that you say about that? Because I was not able to fully confront my animal nature until I had uh, spiritual strength to draw from because it's just the reptilian brain is just the oldest, strongest friggin' thing. Like I need extra super something help with it, you know, and I get it, you know, I get it. So I, I don't know how people do it with it. Actually, I do know how people do it without it. Look at the world today, <laughs> you know, refugees here and war there and just, you know, depleted uranium bombs dropped on people. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, what are we doing? Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you uh, all day, man, but I really want to thank you so much for taking time with us. It's been so great to meet you, and uh, I, I can hardly believe it, actually. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm thrilled to meet you guys. I think you're doing a fabulous job. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm uh, happy to return to your uh, program. I wish you all the best. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. you really, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, spot on on everything that you've had to say, and you're reaching audiences that I don't ever reach. So uh, I consider you to be fellow travelers on the path. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah. Nice to know there's other people on the path sometimes. It could be a lonely place, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just not now finding it. I guess that old algorithm cuts both ways, doesn't it? It treats me good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, I, for one, can't wait to have you back because I got a lot more questions to ask. <laughs> well, it, it'll be a pleasure. I, I really enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.